0: Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for Product Managers and Innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in.
1: Hi, this is Chad, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master, gaining influence and confidence you need to create products customers love. In this discussion, we bring some mature thinking to the topic of maturity. The product life cycle is what I'm talking about, and it consists of five phases. Introduction, growth, maturity, decline, and retire. Successful products make it to maturity, and if properly managed, they can generate profit for your organization for a long time. However, managing maturity comes with many challenges that are not present in the earlier stages of the product life cycle. My guest helps us understand the issues and how to avoid them. She's Jana Basto, co-founder of Prodpad and co-founder of Mind the Product, including mindtheproduct.com, Product Tank and Product Camp London. And Prodpad creates tools for product managers for road mapping, backlog management and customer feedback. It's a great suite of tools to check out. The summary of our discussion is at theeverydayinnovator.com/181. Enjoy the interview. Jana, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: You are joining us from across the pond over in the UK, and I'm glad we got this time to make some headway talking about product management issues for our listeners. And I always like getting a little bit of background on my guests, and this one is admittedly a little bit selfish. I have a 16-year-old daughter, and I'm always curious how people end up in product management, and I like like to look for those connections. And I'm just curious if you were to to think back to your 16-year-old sort of days, If you saw any connections between what you were doing, what you were interested in, how you were coming to be aware, how you were wired right, as a person, to what you're doing today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, I got into product management by accident, like everybody else Mm. I know who got into it.
1: Me too, right Um, here. (laughs)
2: It's a really good question. Looking back on my 16-year-old self, um, I was definitely a dabbler back then. I was a uh, jack-of-all-trades and master-of-none even then. uh, I was probably just about starting my first customer-facing and sales-type gig back then, so Hmm. I took an interest in that. Uh, I'd been dabbling in graphic design and uh, package design and stuff like that, and I was always okay at it but never – amazing at it, but I enjoyed doing it. uh, And I enjoyed trying to create things. Uh, And I also dabbled with a little bit of HTML, CSS, WordPress sites, and things like that back then. So I was kind of getting into the tech side as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I had no direction. I'd never heard of the term product manager. So uh, it wasn't until years later that these things started to come together and become clear that they did help me become a PM.
1: Excellent, Uh, and I can see how those things would have worked together, you know. And I'm also an accidental product manager, came from an engineering background, and also would consider myself certainly at the younger age as a jack of all trades, right? And I, I knew just enough about many things to be dangerous, and sometimes was. Interestingly, for me, I was if you ever took like the Myers Briggs type indicator on the extrovert introvert scale, I was about as far introvert as one could possibly get, and that made me uncomfortable talking with customers. But yet, I, te- I that's how I got into product management. I was just really good at trying to explore their problems and then bring that back to a team that we could do something about it, right? Mm-hmm. Good combination of experiences you have there. The topic I wanted to dive in with you was being a product manager for a maturing product. So we, we think about this product lifecycle, you know, which is typically we introduce a product, it grows in the market, we reach maturity at some point. And then it starts declining and finally we might, you know, retire, take the product out of the marketplace. And I don't hear a lot of people talking specifically about maturing products. And I think our job as product managers is a little bit different and you have some experience in this. So I thought we set the stage with that. Why don't we just talk through kind of what that product lifecycle looks like? Can you walk us through the stages a little bit and we'll discuss that?
0: Yeah,
2: absolutely. So a lot of people are prob- probably familiar with the product lifecycle chart that walks you through the introduction, growth, maturity, and eventual decline. Uh, and every product seems to go through this, whether it's um, something huge that lives forever or uh, something that's um, a much short-lived, much shorter-lived type product. Uh, but most people tend to talk about the introduction and the growth stages. Mm-hmm. Now, that MVP that we talk about usually happens right at the beginning. Uh, you know, those fast iterations and pivots of companies, those are things that tend to happen right in the very early stages of a company, finding product market fit and trying to get that first initial growth and traction. Huh. There's so much written about that, but those are happening in the early stages, which over the course of the life cycle of an entire product that does hit maturity, uh, those pieces are much smaller in comparison, a much smaller fraction of the, the life cycle. Uh, So it's a bit of a shame that we spend so much time talking about that, but not so much talking about the maturity end uh, where things really start to get tough. You know, if you look at the sales volume, it's when the product is mature. That's where most of the money is made. And it's also as the product uh, matures that things like churn and retention issues really start kicking in. You know, it's easy to mask uh, an ugly churn rate with fast growth, particularly if you're funded and you're able to throw money at the problem. But once you've actually saturated that market and once you've started uh, hitting that level of maturity, that churn rate really starts chipping in and chipping away at your, uh, at your sales volume.
1: hmm uh-huh. Uh, I think it's important to point out. You said that's where you know most of the revenue is made, most of the profit is made. Because in a uh, typical path, and certainly different kinds of products would have different paths, but we're not generating profit in introduction and growth, where you just don't have the revenue yet, and we have to pay back all of our development costs in getting this product, you know, out to the marketplace in the first place, having it come to life, so to speak. And in maturity is where we start seeing usually, usually that break-even point where we are making, starting to make actual money back on all of our product work. And we have this busy competition space now going on, right? So if we've done something right, likely we already entered a, a a sector where there's other products. But if we did, if we did something right, we're capturing the attention of competitors who are watching what we did and said, oh, we think we can pick up some of that market, right? We can probably do things better than they are. And we're not alone in the marketplace and, and the churn's going on because people are making choices between the competitors.
2: Yeah, and there's nothing more dangerous than being the absolute first leader because you're spending all that time, all that R&D, proving that there is a market, proving that there's a product that fits this particular market and all your competitors need to do is copy what it is that you've created right. uh, and uh, launch that. And new customers coming in don't really seem to notice or care. So it can be quite dangerous to be in that forefront. Yep. And the reality is, is that most people who are managing products, almost no one is managing some green field, brand new product with no existing tech debt or existing customers mm-hmm. or um, existing issues. Most companies. Are, or most product people are coming into companies and adopting something else that's hit some level of maturity, has hit some level of scale. Uh, and, of course, they do have to think about the different cohorts of users who've been using it over the course of many years. They have to think about the complexity of the tech that it's been built on, whether good or bad. Right. Uh, and they have to think about the competition, which will inevitably be nipping at their heels if they've done anything that looks successful to anybody else.
1: Right. They don't have technical debt in the sense of, you know, from a, a development perspective, but they ha- kind of have, have this customer debt and the customer experience that they've built up. Yeah. And I, I've had the conversation primarily with B2B product managers before about how much changes should I be thinking about making to the user interface in our product or customers? Because they know it, right? They're, they're, this yeah. is what they're used to. And yeah. maybe you figure out a better way to do things, but then that's kind of scary to move into. Now you have, to, you have a customer experience issue to deal with, too, and how you move the customers along with you. And not have them take other actions like go somewhere else at the same time.
2: Yeah. Anybody working on a mature product has to think about the different cohorts have been using their product all along. Yep. When you first launch something, I mean, we discovered this when we first launched ProductPad, which was that the original early adopter users who came in uh, had really high tolerance for being part of a beta product, mm-hmm. being part of something that I was brand new, uh, didn't have all the bells and whistles, but was able to solve a problem for them. And back then, we were able to build really good relationships, have conversations with every last person who joined, uh, get really good feedback from every last person. And, you know, fortunately, some of these customers are still with us. But over the course of five years or so, they've changed from being simple Customers or simple users at the very um, early stages to much more advanced customers. Oh. Many of them use the tool, use ProdPad more readily, and uh, you know, in more anger than I do because they've got larger teams, they've got more complex needs, they need things like custom reporting or you know, advanced user segmentation or things like this that just weren't part of the remit in very early days. Mm-hmm. But we have to weigh up building for existing long-term customers and keeping them on board uh, just as much as we have to think about building for customers who started 30 days ago or 30 Uh seconds ago. Um, Think about how you onboard somebody with a product that is now considerably more technically complex than it was five years ago. Yeah. So it's almost like having to build multiple products at the same time.
1: Yeah, you you probably started out with one target segment in mind for the product. And those early adopters, they they, they kind of self-select themselves, right? As early adopters, we... We yeah. grab a hold of something that's going to solve a, one problem for us. And then we kind of go along for the ride you know, if we're, we're interested. Now you have, have multiple target segments that you're having to address. And those customers have been with you for a long time. They have different needs than the ones that are just starting, starting with the product. Um, for reference, where would you put ProdPad in the, in the life cycle right now?
2: Uh, I'd say that we are still in that growth, uh, growth stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's still a huge market ahead of us so I think it'd be premature to say that we're anywhere near maturity yeah. yet.
1: Yeah. That that would have been my guess too. And partly too because just the the industry of tools that help product managers manage, you know, and do road mapping and keep track of all of our work is still I think in the growth stage as as a sector.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. The entire market itself is growing. When we first started uh, talking about this, we were telling people about this roadmap software or, you know, idea management software. And if you Googled that, we were at the top of the search results because there was no competition. But again, there was no one looking for it. People were finding us because they were looking for, you know, search terms like free roadmap template Excel.
1: Mm. And
2: we'd be like, well, we have something similar to that, but it's not in Excel.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And for good reason.
2: Yeah, exactly. And so now the market's matured. We're now seeing, uh, it's actually really interesting. We're seeing this rise of the product division and of the chief product officer. Mm -hmm. What it's actually doing is creating a space where, uh, you know, where five, 10 years ago, it wasn't obvious that you would have a space for product managers or a budget for them. Nowadays, product managers aren't reporting to the tech team and having to uh, use their budget. They're getting a budget of their own, but they're also getting a responsibility and need to prove their return on investment of having a product team.
1: Yeah, it's a significant change in organizations where product management has become much more prominent in the role, seeing it become a C-suite activity, right? Yeah. We kind of saw the migration that at one point, and this is still going on, certainly, product management starting to report to the CEO, that was a, a huge tidal wave, you know, a change yeah. in organizational structure. And now e- even having a C-suite role is uh, really fascinating to see that go on you know, too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it means a couple things. I mean, we get a seat at the table. It means mm-hmm. that we've got more power, it means that we've got uh, more of a, a autonomy to go solve problems for the company. We're not just reporting into tech and helping to shovel features out the door. Mm-hmm. But it also means that product teams have more responsibility. It means that they have to make a case for where they're spending money, where they, why the team is growing, what's the value of having a product team. Mm-hmm. And it's a difficult question because... You know, if you've got a sales team, they're easy to measure. You can see how many dollars they're adding to the bottom line. A marketing team, it's easy to measure the return on investment of, uh, of, of campaigns. Even with development teams, they've come up with a way, a rubric for measuring them in terms of story points or velocity or other ways of measuring that. Mm-hmm. But product. Shouldn't just be measured by how many features or how many points they can get out the door. And you can't measure us by how much, uh, you know, how many dollars are added to the bottom line because it's not always directly attributable in that right.
1: way. Right. It creates challenges. And I, I hope people listening, we're not measuring just by number of features because unfortunately, I have seen this and I've seen executives actually incentivized to, you know, part of their bonus structure was based on number of products or feature growth or things like that. It's really easy to put in the wrong features. (laughs) You know, we need to put in the right features that actually provide value for our customers.
0: We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us the concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Your one place to become a product master. Theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now.
1: I want to go back to something you said earlier about just the the cost of developing a new product, new to market product versus joining a marketplace already has a class of products in place. And I consider this the myth of being first to market. There's been a lot written about the advantages of being first to market, and a lot of that has been debunked because it's really expensive to make the right bets and do the right things and be first to market. And that fast follower approach says, we notice that someone else is being successful with a group of customers, and we think we can do it better than they are is really successful. And that's how a lot of product managers find themselves with a product in maturity because they're joining a a mature marketplace already with a a product that may have started as a me-too product and now they've made it better, right, to capture more attention. I wonder if we can dive into helping product managers do a better job in this maturity stage, recognizing that competitors are coming in and that they just should not be cranking out features but need to actually add value. Let's talk to that some someplace. Where do you want to start?
2: That's a great question. And one of the things that happens with a lot of companies as they start maturing, as the products start maturing is that they've got these pressures from their team and from their customers for a number of reasons to become a feature factory. Mm. And where this comes from is uh, sometimes based out of bad habits that looked like they were good when the company was young, when that product was young, but that actually have led them astray. Like the, uh, Uh, just being agile and being the type of company that has this really good cadence of getting new features out. In the early days, getting new features out is addictive, because each new feature is something that you can tout, something you can talk about, Mm. and something that tracks your next hundred sales, or your next thousand downloads, or whatever it is that you're aiming for. But over time, those features start adding up. And uh, because you're customers, because your users and their profiles have changed, you need to be devo- developing more and more. And yet each new feature added just creates much more of a Frankenstein of a product rather than something compelling. Right. Now, it's not that there's this magic number of features that a, a product needs to have, but it is known that as product gets more and more complex, it starts ad- adding to the cognitive load for your users and it starts becoming more difficult. And yet companies still stick with that idea that they need to keep this cadence up that they need to do two-week sprints back-to-back, and each time they need something delivered at the end of that or that they need featured to tout in their newsletter every month, when the reality is is that they should be focusing on solving problems rather than getting features out. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so one of the things that I would actually blame for that is the roadmap. The roadmap is a really contentious tool, um, and it's not necessarily that it's a bad tool. It can be amazing for... uh, Communicating the company strategy to people in the team and making sure that everyone understands that direction. But a lot of people get tripped up when the roadmap becomes this glorified Gantt chart that has a whole bunch of features on it with a whole bunch of due dates and guesstimated durations, which basically are just a bunch of assumptions stacked on top of assumptions. And it tends to lead product teams astray, it tends to lead to failure, uh, and it makes the product teams look bad. Right. Um, And so what we generally recommend is to take your roadmap and completely rewrite it so it ditches any sort of timeline. Hmm. Ditch that timeline along the top. Don't just add feature after feature. Instead, think of your roadmap as a prototype. It's a communication document, but it's also a prototype. It's a way for you to say, Our vision is to be the X of Y, and these Mm -hmm. are the problems we think we want to solve. And then to use that prototype and those assumptions that you're putting on there to check as to whether you're solving the right problems, whether you're aiming in the right direction, whether there's anything that's missing from that strategy or anything that's extraneous in there that you can be taking out long before you even start thinking about coding it. Uh, And so by ditching that timeline and that Gantt chart timeline version of your roadmap, it allows you to really focus back on solving problems, focusing on the outcome hitting your objectives rather than the output, which is number of stories built or right. loss or features put out there.
1: Yeah, this issue of roadmaps becoming Gantt charts is really problematic. Yeah. I, I had the pleasure of, inter, of interviewing uh, Bruce McCarthy. Have you ever talked with Bruce?
2: Yes, absolutely. We've been talking for years now.
1: Wonderful. That was back yeah. in episode 169 for anyone that wants to go check it out. And he has a, a recent book, Product Roadmaps Relaunched. He talks about how to how to use them as a vision tool, as a collaboration tool, and not to lock yourself in. And I, I loved his perspective, which he said he, he borrowed from someone else, which is the typical product roadmap makes product managers out to be a liar, right? E- either we keep our commitment to the timeline, to the Gantt chart, and we build something that we know the customer doesn't need because we learned, right, in that time span what they really need, or we don't build what we said we were going to build. And we build something that actually addresses their problem because we're learning all the time, you know, as time goes on. Yeah. And we do end up with these Frankenstein products that we just keep slapping new features on. And some of that, I don't know what you've seen. Some of that is in response to the competitors, right? The competitors did something, either we as product managers, or I've seen this more often come from a sales team or an executive said, we need to do what they're doing. And my question is always, well, how do we know that they did the right thing?
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, uh, and I do see people being led astray with that, and I don't blame them because if you like, if you go to Google right now and do an image result uh, image search for product roadmap, you see this big pile of timeline roadmaps, right, with all mm-hmm. these features after features, and they're basically these promises that people are making to their team and to their customers, mm-hmm. and it's sending, it stresses out the developers because it sends them on death marches in order to hit these particular due dates to potentially be building. Completely the wrong thing because you're not focusing on what customers are asking for. In the meantime, you're not building in that flexibility to respond to the market. Uh, and but when you look up, you know how to do a roadmap. This is often the information that comes out there. This is what right. I found. When I first started as a product person, I didn't have any sort of direction or help or guidance. I kind of was plopped into the role uh, and had to look up, you know, so what does a product manager do? Mm-hmm. And was faced with, you know, massive PRD templates, which are also a terrible idea uh, because no one reads an 80-page PRD template. Um, and um, get chart versions of roadmaps that basically are promises of all these different PRDs and things that you're going to build along the way. And it took me years to get out of that habit.
1: Yeah. There are a lot of product managers, and I was one of these product managers too. And I think maybe because my engineering background is easy for me to take on this role, which has become the the requirements person, right? The, the, the PRD person, the, just managing the requirements and making sure the development team has something to develop. Yeah. And kind of losing track over time, and I think this is pretty easy to do with a, a product in the maturity stage, losing track of the actual vision of the product and start chasing features instead. Apple's taken some heat at times for actually removing features from a mature product. I mean, at one time, I was really annoyed with them because they took some things out of Movie Maker that I was using and had to find a new workaround. But I, I think that that takes some real guts to do when you have a clear vision of who the user is for your product and what problem you're actually solving. Yeah. Redefine what the feature set should be so that you stay on vision.
2: Yeah, and I know it's frustrating when one of your favorite makers removes some feature or kills off some product, but I also sympathize with them. I mm-hmm. empathize with the, with the fact that some things just aren't as profitable and don't make sense to actually build. Uh, and this is why I'm actually really happy to pay for some you know, small makers, uh, you know, like for a tool or something like that. Uh, I get quite suspicious when somebody builds some tool and says it's free forever. And you right. realize there's no way that that is viable unless you are the product and it's something like Facebook and it's your data at stake. Mm-hmm. Uh, which We all know how well that worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but <laughs> uh, it definitely does uh, take a lot of courage to remove features from something. But it's important to do so. It's important to uh, make sure that the product you're building Overall, is solving the best problems for the best market that is uh, that you're able to to do, uh, even at the risk of losing customers over a particular feature that was never going to be viable and would have led you down the wrong path, anyways.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we look, look at the life cycle, you talked about introduction a little bit ago. In, in the introduction stage, we must have had a successful MVP. We, we found that problem, you know, product market fit for a customer. Because we created something that's created some value that people are buying into now. So we we Mm -hmm. hopefully had some successful introduction. And at that point, we were doing lots of experiments trying to figure out what the problem actually was the customer had and what the right solution we could bring to create value for them so they would choose our solution. Doesn't some of that still have to be occurring in the maturity phase so that we are building the right features?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The build, measure, learn cycle should continue um, Mm -hmm. at all stages. Uh, There's always opportunities to solve new problems. There's always opportunities to improve or to uh, breathe new life into existing ones. And as your product matures, if you have a churn rate of anything more than 0%, if you have any customers leaving at any point in time, then eventually that will chip into your overall um, market saturation or your ability to uh, maximize revenues on something right. and so at the absolute top of the maturity curve it's your job as a product team to breathe new life into it either by finding new markets for it or by adding new ways of adding value finding new ways of adding value to the product whether that's expanding into new um, you know like finding adjacent problems to solve or um, adding something that's more valuable to the users uh, that discovery is still happens at those stages. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that experimentation becomes quite scary for companies as they mature. You know, we're all familiar with the the lean startup build, measure, learn cycle. And yet a lot of companies just end up in this build, build, build phase, right? Mm -hmm. Where they they just don't spend the time measuring and learning. Uh, And part of that comes out of being a feature factory and having this pressure coming down from them to have new features out there. Um, But a lot of times they're not doing the measuring and learning not because they don't think it's important, but because there's not actually space or permission built Mm. into the, into the system for that. Uh, And that's why I recommend some form of dual track agile or some other way of building in both discovery and delivery into your workflow. Because if you just have delivery and you've got a process around building really fast iterations of, you know, uh, sprints and releases going out but you're not actually spending the time looking back retroactively going did we actually solve that problem mm-hmm. then there's no point point in continue on with the other ones because you're just going to end up building more and more stuff without actually checking if you're solving the problems uh, so i recommend to people to build what we call uh, a validation roadmap or some sort of retrospective roadmap where you take the things that you've said the problems you said you're going to solve put them off to the side somewhere make a little bookmark or marker or something to go back and check you know, we did this uh, uh, big sprint to uh, improve the checkout flow. We expected the checkout flow to uh, change conversion rates from here to here. Mm-hmm. Well, in a month's time, you should be able to go back and see, did it work? What kind of things are still holding people up? Do we need to bring this back on the board and do it again? Or did we solve that problem? And now we are free to move on to the next thing.
1: Making space for that is, is really important. I like, I like how you said yeah. that you know, for discovery and not just the delivery
2: a lot of it is also around having an experimentation mindset. Mm. Again, people intuitively know that they should be checking and testing and making sure that their work works. But a lot of people don't feel safe doing so. And so it's important to build what we call psychological safety. And what we mean by that is building is is checking as to whether people on the team feel safe uh, piping up and helping out with the product, whether they feel uh, that they can point out failures that they've made or that are in the product, whether they are uh, challenging themselves. and there's a few ways you can actually do that. I mean, some of that is just around uh, creating different spaces, right? So creating like a, a, a track, um, a reward system, some way of actually recognizing that people are doing discovery and uh, celebrating failures, celebrating things that you've learned along the way. Um, but you can also change your language a little bit. You know, within my team, I like to use words like um, setting hypotheses or hmm. saying, how might we as opposed to i think that right mm-hmm. so it changes things into more of a collective problem and it supposes instead of asserts uh, and also using terms like i bet because with i bet it means that you can throw something out there throw out a hypothesis try it out see what sticks see what works and if you're if it's wrong it wasn't you that was wrong it was your bet and now mm-hmm. you're free to work move on to the next thing
1: right and that's what fundamentally innovation is all about is making bets hopefully getting some data quickly and expensively. So we uh, have more credibility for the bet that we do want to take. Yeah. And as you talked about that psychological safety, the thing I was thinking about before you said there, a lot of organizations, we just don't make room during the maturity phase of the life cycle for that discovery and the, the structures in place. A lot of product managers don't have that flexibility. For some reason we, we think about doing or at least we're probably more natural to thinking about doing this in the beginning as we're, getting our product ready to be introduced to the market. And then once we see growth going on, that's good. And maturity happens. And I think in the heads of a lot of traditional managers, we're seeing a cash cow evolve, right? We we spend all this money. We have this thing now generating revenue. Let's just let it run and put in as little money as possible. The interesting thing, as we saw growth occurring, so we're in the growth stage of the product lifecycle, that's because our product was the new shiny, glitzy sort of option, Right. And we get some maturity and that growth is slowing down because we're no longer the shiny, glitzy option for people. And if, as product managers, if we're not taking the actions to keep our product being shiny and glitzy, then it eventually levels off and we reach decline. And uh, we we need the, this, uh, as you said, one approach would be the dual, dual agile tract of doing discovery and delivery together. So I like that. Thank you for sharing that. And a- another point you talked about was just changing our language a little bit. And how we can think in terms of hypotheses and making bets and how might we understand, discover something that we need? How might we find out if we're on the right path or not versus I think, you know, that we're, this is what we should do. That's really useful just to start changing the culture a little bit of how we're approaching product management and product development.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at the end of the day, your most important product is your product culture. As a product manager, it's not your job to have all the answers and to
0: mm.
2: be stating all the things that we're going to be working on. It's your job to be in the middle of all these key areas and be asking the right questions, uh, guiding people towards building the right products and you know using their knowledge and what they're seeing, their experiences to help prioritize and figure out what the best things are to work on.
1: All really good points. So just a few highlights to emphasize as we talk through being in the maturity phase of a product, managing that. We should not be turning ourselves into a feature factory. We still want to be close to the customer, understand what the actual problem is, keep the vision for the product in mind, use a discovery and delivery system simultaneously. So we're still doing discovery and making our product glitzy and shiny for our customers. And building that that proper culture, right, a safe place to say, you know, here's something that we didn't do quite right that we could do better. You know, how might we do something better to solve our customers? So excellent points. I appreciate you going through those with us. As listeners know, I love innovation quotes, and I often ask for one. And I w- wanted to hear what you brought us.
2: All right. So uh, one of my favorite quotes ever is this one by Douglas Adams, who's the author behind Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And it goes... I love deadlines. I love the whooshing noise they make as they go by. And besides this being a bit of a laugh, uh, I do think that it's quite apt at pointing out that it's not important about getting bits of work done on time. Deadlines are so often arbitrary, externally facing things that have been set by somebody else just because they felt like they needed one, when in reality, it's more important that you're building the right sorts of things and that you're solving the right sort. of problems. Uh, so, I love that quote.
1: You know, we've had a lot of quotes on the this podcast so far. I have not had one from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy yet. I love that because I watch Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Excellent. That's a great delight for me to have that one to tie into also. I did want to give a shout out to the other work that you do with Mind the Product. I don't want to overlook that. <laughs> the <laughs> the And I had the pleasure of talking to your co-founder in that, and that uh, Martin Erickson, back in episode 125. I think it is so important to be part of some kind of group as product managers to let us just learn from each other and at times ask for sympathy right? because of the struggles that we're going through so we don't feel alone out there in that. Can you just give a quick overview of that work that Mind the Product is doing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was something that was grown out of uh, basically the need of myself and several others who were product managers constantly surrounded by folks who weren't product people and needed just somewhere to go and find out where we're working on the right stuff. We've got war stories. We've got nightmares. We've got issues that we want to talk about. Right. And so it started off a little bit more like group therapy with talks and beers uh, in a little tiny uh, room above a pub in London. Uh, And it's really, really grown since then. Uh, We now have about uh, 150 different cities around the world that run what we call Product Tank, Mm -hmm. which is a monthly to quarterly event uh, that will gather anywhere from 20 to 400 product people, depending on the size of the city, all over the place. And we cap it off with uh, several large conferences around the world, including London and San Francisco. Um, One of the things we've got coming up, and I'm really thrilled to see this happening, is World Product Day. So mark your calendars, May 23rd is gonna be the world's first world product day, the first time that we're gonna be celebrating this. And we're gonna be celebrating it in style because we're gonna be running Uh, upwards of 70 product tanks all on the same day. Wow. Uh, And start on one side of the planet and sweep across as the time time zones go. And so we're going to be talking about product all day and bringing together all the product people. Uh, Maybe for once, somebody else can bring the donuts.
1: (laughs) Well, that'd be nice. The donuts and the beer. (laughs) Excellent. I've had the pleasure of being a a guest speaker at uh, Mind the Product. A couple other invitations. I'm just trying to work out schedules so I can come join their groups too. These are really, valuable meetups and it's just the the opportunity to get together with other product managers and share stories and learn something together great opportunities for us as product managers so if you're not familiar yet everyday innovators with product tank go check it out i always go to meetup to look uh, for meetups but i assume there's producttank.com
2: producttank.com is your best place to find your local uh, product tank meetup yep
1: excellent also, how can people find out more about the work that you're doing there, more about ProdPad and anything else you want to leave us with?
2: Yeah, sure. Thank you. So ProdPad is uh, another tool. It was another thing that was born out of simply needing it I was a product manager product manager myself and so is my co-founder and both of us needed tools to help us figure out what goes on that roadmap how to display that roadmap how to gather our ideas and customer feedback uh, and so what started off as a hack project many years ago is now available as a tool that's used by uh, almost a thousand different companies all around the world are uh, mm-hmm. using prodpad today and it's uh, available at prodpad.com start your free trial today
1: Thanks for building that for us because product managers need good tools to help us organize our work. It is about product managing, and we need tools to, to help us with that management work. So it's such a great pleasure talking with you. I appreciate the insights into managing a maturing product. Also, the work that you've done there with Mind the Product and Product Tank and putting together ProdPad as a product for product managers to help us be more productive.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me, Chad.
1: Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of our discussion with Jana at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 181. Keep innovating.
0: Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.